Hey everyone, this is Boss Barista, and I'm Ashley Rodriguez. We're continuing to report solo. I'm in Chicago right now, and Jasper's in San Francisco. And we're bringing you more perspectives, ideas, and insight on the four-barrel controversy that's been unfolding over the last few weeks. If you're unaware of what's going on, take a listen to episodes 034 and 035, where Jasper and I break down the lawsuit and talk about the aftermath. But for a quick recap, Four Barrel, which is based in San Francisco, and their co-founder, Jeremy Tooker, were sued for sexual misconduct early January. Since then, Jeremy left the company and turned over his 50% stake to the two other owners, Tal Moore and Jody Guerin, who then decided to change the name to Four Bar- from Four Barrel to The Tide, promising to make Four Barrel an employee-owned company. That name change lasted about 11 days, and then they returned to calling it Four Barrel, and the lawsuit was quickly settled after that. Uh, Tal and Jody still claim that they're going to divest from the company at some point, but there's no timeline at this moment. And in the midst of all of this, seven employees were laid off without any notice. Uh, The company cited financial reasons, and when I reached out to them a few weeks ago for a story I was writing for Barista Magazine, uh, I got an email from a person working at Citric & Co., which is the crisis PR firm that represents Harvey Weinstein. Uh, So that's where we are right now. Throughout all this, there's been a lot of amazing journalism going on, and I'm pleased to welcome one of the people who's written about this topic. Her name is Megan McCarran, and she is a writer for Eater.com and published probably one of the best articles about not just the harassment that's been happening at Four Barrel, but within the restaurant industry in general. Megan's been with Eater for four years, covering the Austin food scene before moving to Los Angeles and working on Eater's main website, and I am thrilled to have Megan on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, If you haven't read Megan's article yet, you should. It's incredible. It's called Dear Bad Men, Divest from Your Restaurants Already. It was published on January 25th. And we've shared snippets of it on our social media stories, and we'll link to the article when we release this episode. But before we get into the article, which we're going to break down in a little bit, I want to learn a little bit more about you and how you got into food journalism. Well, like a lot of people, my path was not traditional, especially, you know, I I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't even really realize that journalism was something I could end up pursuing until I was 30. I uh, have always been interested in writing. I write fiction and have been publishing fiction, you know, um, for a long time now. And after I got an MFA in creative writing, a job was open at Eater Austin, where I lived at the time. And I honestly thought I wasn't even qualified to apply, uh, which, you know, folks don't underestimate yourself <laughs> is the the lesson I took away from there. I did end up getting the job after trying out for it. And I discovered how much I loved walking into restaurants and asking people, you know, hey, you have a sign up about a second location. What are you doing there? Or getting, you know, going out drinking with bartenders at two in the morning to find out about their next projects or um, digging through county records to find new liquor license filings to find out who was going to open a new place somewhere. So um, I discovered I loved reporting. Uh, Daily Beat journalism was just the best possible place to learn how to write quickly and accurately, especially online. Um, And the cool thing about Eater is you are also blogging, so you get to use your own voice and 
be a little critical at times and have a perspective um, in one of the most dynamic aspects of uh, our culture right now, which is food and dining and coffee and all that kind of stuff. So that's how I got into this. And then I, we moved from Austin to Los Angeles for my girlfriend's job. And I moved over to our features department where I got to do uh, long form editing, uh, a little bit of writing as well. I worked on city guides uh, for Paris and Tokyo and Lisbon. I did a, I was the lead editor on our guide to Hawaii. And so I got to think really big picture for a while about how do we tell stories about places in new and exciting ways, especially through the lens of travel. And just this January, I officially transitioned into being a staff writer and reporter for eater.com. Uh, I missed writing. Um, I also just wanted to see how it felt to go back to writing uh, more regularly and getting to do some deeper reporting full time. So I'm thrilled to be in this new role and I am still figuring it out. Yeah, I think that's that's always true. I'm still trying to figure out this podcasting thing <laughs> for like two years. Yeah, if you think you know what you're doing, you're probably wrong. <laughs> oh, most definitely. I mean, I mean, full disclosure, Megan and I did start recording this yesterday and then something happened on my end where GarageBand just decided to crash out of nowhere and I couldn't find any of my files and Megan was like did you save it and I'm like well that would have been a really good idea huh of course I did not (laughs) and so you're we're always truly trying to figure things out uh day by day what sort of topics are you passionate about what kind of things do you like to cover I am passionate about a lot of different things in the food and restaurant world. I think that's the secretly wonderful thing about focusing on this aspect of our culture is you can actually secretly write about anything. I would say one vein that I follow and would like to continue following um, is specifically a focus on queer people in this world. I am identify as lesbian, and I really am interested, especially in how queer entrepreneurs are pioneering these sort of more inclusive and ethical models for running a business and really looking at how can you combine capitalism and community in a really interesting way. I wrote a short profile of a coffee shop here in LA called Cuties um, that is very much in that mold, and I really enjoyed working on that story. I'm also really interested in big picture narratives about how we got to this moment in food and often the people they leave out. So I wrote a piece about the last 50 years of fine dining. And, you know, when you think of how everywhere you go in the world, on the world's 50 best or the has two stars from the Michelin Guide, it's all these teeny tiny plates of food. They're hyper seasonal. There's a little story about everything on the plate. You know, maybe the ingredients look kind of surprising. Um, And when I asked myself, you know, where did that come from? I had the good fortune to be at a conference in Japan. And uh, all the speakers talked about how inspired they were by kaiseki, which is a Japanese fine dining tradition that definitely goes back at least until the 1940s and has roots in, you know, like a thousand years of Japanese culinary traditions. And what I found out is that all these French chefs in the 60s were going to Japan and had their minds blown, and then they came back, and suddenly there was Nouvelle Cuisine. So I 
really enjoyed writing that piece just because we talk a lot about the innovative nature of those really famous French cooks, but often the Japanese chefs and experts they learned a lot from are not mentioned. And so, you know, I like writing stories like that. That's incredible. I've never, I've never heard anything like that about restaurants and the traditions that we kind of tout as innovative and interesting and then being like well actually they come from somewhere else and those are people who we're just not talking about because we're co-opting things and it's rampant in the culinary world and you know I think a lot of that is because food writing is so white and a lot of people share very similar backgrounds and perspectives and I am a white person writing about food so I don't pretend that I don't have these biases but when I sort of feel see places where like one assumption has been dominated by you know how white men do things and I get lucky enough to sort of come across this, the real story behind that kind of the like some of the most exciting things about the culinary world um I I get I'm really passionate about you know getting to expand our definition of who's a genius of food and who matters in food um as much as I'm able and obviously I'm not the only one there's a lot of writers doing a lot of that work right now and it's just a really exciting time so let's talk about how you landed with this story how I mean obviously you've been paying attention to the me too movement and you have some articles kind of previously talking about how the me too movement has affected the restaurant industry what led you to write this specific article the short answer is I have really good editors who when we just start talking about bigger issues or questions that haven't been raised yet, they help me sort of see, oh, hey, this is a whole piece that we could do. Um, you know, Matt Buchanan and Aaron DeJesus, who I work with at Eater, we were both talking about tweets and other articles and original reporting and commentary that was starting to coalesce around the question of what will the consequences be for men who have been very credibly accused of misconduct. Um, and I wrote a very short op-ed about uh, Miami Wine and Food Festival's decision to invite two men, uh, Michael Chiarello and Paul Key. Michael Chiarello has settled a number of harassment lawsuits in, in his restaurants um, that are full of some vile accusations. Paul Key was arrested for domestic assault. And I wrote that piece just sort of saying like, hey, you know what the easiest thing to do is not invite men like that to an extremely expensive food festival that's considered to be a real perk in the restaurant world. You know, there, and then that sort of opened up the question of how difficult it is to deal with the problem of someone who's an owner and the face of a restaurant group who's very powerful in the industry, you know, how difficult it is for those men to be faced with real consequences for these, you know, accusations. You know, the legal system, as we all know, is a really, is really not doing its job for victims of sexual harassment and assault, you know, and then if there's not a useful and reliable 
legal recourse for women who've been through this at work, you know, what happens? Like, and what we're seeing right now is the press is taking the lead on doing really time-intensive, skillful, thoughtful, really important original reporting that's airing a lot of these accusations um, often for the first time or just in a really comprehensive way that no one can ignore. But then what happens after that? And we're seeing in the restaurant world men stepping away. Um, That's sort of what is being used over and over again. Mari Batali has stepped away. Ken Freeman has stepped away. Charlie Hallowell has stepped away. But they're still owners of these businesses. So if people still go to those restaurants and those restaurants are still turning a profit, those men are still getting paid. And the Four Barrel case was interesting because it was the first time I had seen a company at least attempt to address those larger issues of profit and power when responding to these accusations. But then I quickly also became interested in, well, what are the limits of even going co-op? So that's where this piece started, a conversation about consequences, considering the problem of ownership, and then wanting to really dig into what does it mean that these men who've stepped away because of these accusations of misconduct are still owning their businesses. But I think something that your article does, it doesn't even just stop there, which, I mean, in and of itself is an important question to ask. Like, what happens when these men are accused of harassment? And like you said, a lot of them are stepping down but are still profiting from their businesses. But there's really been no push to do anything more. And like you said, with Four Barrel, and what makes it interesting is that it's kind of the first case where someone did step down but there still has yet to be any sort of systemic change within the company or any that we can see at least. So what I really admired about your article is that it kind of kept digging. Like, what does it mean to be a co-op? That doesn't mean that sexual harassment ends, for example. And what does it mean for businesses to keep running when they're still profiting off the pain that women have suffered within the restaurant world? And you kind of hint at this too, like, women are systemically not just affected at this point of calling out abuse, but also affected because they weren't promoted before or they left before harassment happened at these places. Or this one's a common one is that they're seen as like disloyal to their company because they leave because of harassment. So I think, God, it's just such a good article. Everyone should just stop this right now and go read it like 20 times. But like I just I just really admired the fact that you really pushed that boundary and really talked about the economics of these decisions. So can you ca- kind of talk a little bit about that argument because I think we you've you've mentioned this before like this topic often gets talked about in this very like sexualized manner because once you see the word sex it's kind of like oh that's where that's where my interest lies but I think a lot of um your argument really speaks to the economic power that these men still have that these women do not have yet. That's one of the most infuriating aspects of this kind of systemic injustice. It's a system built to keep women out of the restaurant industry. My thinking was really shaped by a book called Taking the Heat. Its subtitle is Women, Chefs, and Gender Inequality in the Professional Restaurant Kitchen by two academics, Deborah Harris and Patty Giafri. And They're both sociologists, and they wrote a sociological survey about women in the central Texas restaurant industry, and also they did a survey of 
um, food media and look at uh, some bias that they found in food media. But what their sociological survey found was there is this established dynamic where men and very masculine dominated trades resist women coming into those trades because when an industry or a trade feminizes, wage and prestige drops. A good example of this is elementary school teachers. In the early 20th century, it was a fairly male-dominated field. As women came into the field, pay dropped, prestige dropped, um, and we can see the evidence of that today. Um, you know, women who teach young children, and especially women you know who teach in preschools, I feel like there's a really great piece in the New York Times maybe recently about how that's like literally some of the most important teaching that can be done and it's the lowest paid and it's because it's female dominated. So the authors and I would definitely not say, well, therefore the men are right to sort of try to keep women out of the restaurant world uh, because everyone needs to get paid. Like it's, it's an immoral reaction to like a more largely immoral situation. Right. And restaurant cooking has this, Restaurant cooking has this additional insecurity around gender because in our culture, cooking is still women's work. Domestic cooking is still primarily done by women. There's sort of an expectation that it is something for women. You know, maybe more men are cooking in the home, but there's so much branding around dude food or like sciency cooking that obviously there's still a lot of cultural insecurity there. And so women coming in to cook professionally in the restaurant kitchen also threatens the men who are there because it literally threatens to make that work as feminized and undervalued as like the work that women do at home every day in in the kitchen. So there's this sort of extreme masculine insecurity at play in restaurant kitchens already. And as a result, there's a lot of harassment of women who try to come into those spaces. And so it's already an economic issue. And if some of that harassment is sexual harassment, it's again, it's evidence of this kind of gender hostility. I mean, it's the most direct way to make a woman feel unwelcome and unsafe in a professional environment is to not just, you know, yell at her or insult her, but to sexualize her. So I do really think it's an economic issue. And the sexual aspect of sexual harassment isn't something we should ignore, but I think we're way more comfortable thinking of women as vulnerable sex objects, even in like a very progressive lens than we are as ambitious professionals being discriminated against. Oh, God, that was so good. Uh, I just like that to take a minute to take that all in. Um, I think like, I mean, I've read, I've read the article a couple of times and I feel like if people read it like really quickly or like once or twice, or even looking at the comments, which don't look at cause it's infuriating. Um, people <laughs> seem to think that like you're offering this, like m- men have to leave their restaurants, definitely sort of prescriptive solution but that's not what you're saying at all. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the questions that you want to raise and talk about and kind of put out in the open for restaurants and now coffee shops to consider. I'm 
I'm sure also people read the article as saying like, yep, get out immediately because, you know, it has it has that headline, right? Like that's always the problem with headlining something. I've definitely, if you have written online for a long time and done reporting online for a long time, uh, you're very used to sort of seeing the comments, like someone reads the headline and then goes down and like yells at the headline in the comments, right? I understand and I hope that the piece adequately acknowledges that divestment from a business is an extremely complicated process. And I also understand that it would be something that takes time. You know, the four barrel situation has a lot of open questions. I do understand that they might be trying to address all of them right now and just not talking about it. I don't know if that's the case, but it is a really complicated process. You know, breaking up a business is like a divorce. And in some ways, the divorce is probably easier. So this is a complicated issue, like logistically. But I think when you look at it from a sort of economic justice perspective, the call is very simple. You know, and especially because the founders of Four Barrel, Mario Batali, Ken Friedman, Charlie Halliwell, they are all apologizing, right? So there's been an acknowledge of some kind of harm done. And the easiest way to fix this problem of profit and power is for these people who are sorry to actually give up that profit and power. You know, like forcing someone out, very difficult. But if someone is truly contrite and wants to, you know, really make a change voluntarily withdrawing is a lot easier. So that's sort of where this point comes down. You know, what is our, what is our current line for being sorry? Is it stepping away, either still taking a profit or funneling profits back into paying extremely high paid crisis consultants? And, you know, maybe going to therapy, maybe truly working on yourself, but never quite, you know, acknowledging the level of economic harm done, you know, and then coming back. And I'm sure there will be some really compelling redemption stories uh, pitched (laughs) in the future um, for all of us, you know, or is it saying like, hey, like I built and profited off something that I now acknowledge was built on, you know, some really ugly actions and you know a place that I was able to build my brand and my profile and women were leaving because they felt unsafe and sometimes in part due to the actions of these owners allegedly so you know to sort of say wow I'm gonna step away and let the talented people who are still there and want to stay there not just keep something going but actually become the owners and become the people who profit and control it. So, you know, I feel like that's at least a line we should be asking for. Um, I understand. And I think, you know, most people who are uncomfortable with seeing men who've stepped away still profiting understand that it's a really complicated issue logistically. But when talking about justice and what we think would be justice served, you know, if the legal system's already failing women who experience harassment. In your article, 
you mentioned some like reluctance about the co-op model because that doesn't necessarily eradicate the toxic environment that's been created at four barrel. And I think that that's something that a lot of people haven't talked about. There's this idea that, okay, Jeremy is left, so it's done. It's over. But there isn't much talk about like what a culture looks like. Um, so I'm wondering like what, what your thoughts on that are like, how do you like, not how do you fix one? Cause that's like an impossible question to ask, but like, how do you even start to contend with that? The argument isn't that it's just one bad man, but it's, it's a culture that's been allowed to perpetuate. That is the hardest question. And I do think, I don't think any solution can be perfect. I think I wrote this piece out of a frustration that larger questions about how ownership and profit affect culture are generally not being asked rather than saying like, we need a pure business with like no problems and like the most just model ever. That's also why I decided to report out this piece and not just write an opinion piece based on available information. And I spoke to people who are still working with four barrel. I spoke to, um, from Four Barrel um, over text. And I did really want to see, you know, what kind of transparency they could offer and sort of what people are thinking about culture. But I do think the press about Four Barrel that I've read or some of the conversation that Four Barrel is pushing both on their own and now through their own new crisis PR firm is sort of talking a lot about the allegations concerning Jeremy Tricker, but those lawsuits contained allegations about people who were not Jeremy and alleged some like cultural issues that manifested in all sorts of like petty yet telling ways like that cider drink, you know? Though I do find it, I, I, those fuck it mugs I always read as like, Oh, screw it. Like, don't worry about it. So I don't know. Like maybe I missed some signs as well. I but, agree. Um, I missed some of those signs too. But then I listened to an episode of a different coffee podcast and they have the designer, this uh-huh. guy named Kevin Tudball on, and they're talking about how they, they have the fuck it and the suck it mugs. And they talked about how they released the suck it mugs on Valentine's yeah. Day. And I was like, that was not an accident. Right? Right? Ugh. <laughs> I would release the fuck it mug on Valentine's Day because fuck it. Like, who cares what your Valentine does or doesn't do? Anyway, uh, when I have my uh, feminist coffee shop and wine bar, I will have a different kind of fuck it mug. Uh, that's a joke. Um, but yeah, I, and I do think, you know, and this, and, and my thinking was also helped like talking to some sources and some friends in the coffee world and sort of saying, like, okay, they're going to go co op, but what about this, this, and this? Like, this wasn't just my original, um, you know, insight on my own, empowering employee ownership, if there's also within a lawsuit that's been settled, allegations of employee misconduct, or at least creating an unsafe environment, you know, what are you going to do about that? And it could be as simple as acknowledging that, you know, as like folding that into your carefully crafted messaging. But that's not quite happening yet. And I do think in general, we're so comfortable pinning some of our society's ugliest 
biases and hatreds and actions on, you know, these villains, these, like, single bad actors who made everything nasty. I was really happy when Eater New York, who broke the story about Batali, you know, also ran a follow-up story about larger cultural problems within Batali Basiyanich, you know? I think we love to focus on individuals and not think about the systems that are sort of built maybe around that individual, around their brand, around their vision, but involve a lot of people. And again, I'm sure finding a solution for creating a truly equitable culture, if it has been literally the kind of culture where you release a suck it mug on Valentine's Day, is probably pretty tricky. But it's free and I think, you know, probably not that costly to say that you want to, like, that you acknowledge that's part of the process. Right. It seems you know like what I mean? Not a lot of acknowledgement that these problems could potentially be cultural or that, you know, perhaps, like, through leadership of a couple of people, like, things have gotten a little bit out of control and we're trying to rein that in like it's okay to acknowledge it and I think I think what is frustrating is that there's just not a lot a lot of transparency yes and obviously in situations where a lawsuit is in play or where a lawsuit could come into play like that's sort of the frustrating aspect of reporting in this kind of environment about powerful players is they have lawyers, they have PR, and and even within organizations that can lead to a lack of transparency. So that is sort of a frustrating aspect of this whole conversation. And I don't know all the solutions for that. But it is, there is a frustrating narrative being pushed that, you know, the bad actor is no longer around, you know, maybe he also gave up his shares and now everything's just going to get fixed. And I do think asking questions about profit and asking questions about, you know, culture have to be like, that's the press's responsibility in this. And I do think for these um, very successful groups, you know, if they are not just trying to save their brand image, but actually trying to create better places to work, they have to, at the very least, be addressing these issues internally. And at some point, it would really set an example in the industry for them to address them publicly. What do you say to people who are, who are above the mindset that, like, politics shouldn't be in food that was the overwhelming again I know you didn't read the comments on this article but I did and I was that was overwhelming like overwhelmingly the message down down in the comment section was like politics shouldn't be in restaurants or like why didn't those women just like go work somewhere else or like a man who owns a business can do whatever he wants even if he is a creep it was, it was infuriating, but I'm sure that you probably get that a lot. The idea that like food and politics don't have any intersection. So I wonder like, how do you approach that question? That question is bonkers and extremely wrongheaded. 
I love food and I love going out to eat and I love the pleasure like the multifarious pleasures available to us as contemporary diners, right? And I get very tired, even myself sometimes, of thinking about the nasty background of lots of things I enjoy. You know, I understand that frustration. But Food is so fascinating and writing about food right now feels so vital because it is the locus of so many really pressing and um, vital, I guess you could say political problems we're facing, but cultural problems, you know, I, I think even, you know, boiling questions of harassment and discrimination down to politics is frustrating to me because we're talking about people's lives and we're talking about their dreams and we're talking about the things they care most about in the world. Uh, you know, people in the food and restaurant industry are not there because they want to get rich. You know, they're there because they love cooking or they love serving people or they just love the magic of restaurants and coffee and community. Uh, everyone needs to get paid um, and everyone should be paid a fair wage um, for, you know, good work. But um, like, I don't, I don't, it's like not only should politics be in food, like the stakes are even higher than, you know, political stakes. It's cultural stakes. It's life stakes. You know, so, uh, yeah, I find that question really frustrating. <laughs> you know, and it's just hard because, like, I'm a woman um, who loves coffee. I, I'm not, like, a coffee nerd, but I like to have a nicely made cup of coffee in the morning. I work out of cafes. Uh, I'm, a, like, many people who mostly work from home in Los Angeles. And that culture is really important to me. But also, I will never feel as comfortable or as welcome as a white guy in those spaces for the most part. And that's one of the reasons I wrote about cuties because I went to their pop-up and it was amazing to be in a space of like mostly queer identified, um, a lot of trans identified people who were still really there for, you know, good coffee and good food, but also for community. I, I sometimes wonder the, the people who say, you know, keep your politics out of this are they the people who feel so comfortable already in these worlds and these spaces that they don't want to see that other people are much less comfortable in those worlds? What do you want people to take away from your article? To overthrow capitalism. No, I'm kidding. Um, but <laughs> I knew that was going to be the final, the final bullet. Um, no. Uh, what do I want them to take away? I think I have two different kind of hopes because you know, you think about two or three different kinds of readers for any piece. If by chance people from Four Barrel or people who work with Four Barrel or people from the Talibasianis or people from um, Ken Freeman's group happen to read this piece, you know, if they weren't already thinking about these issues of ownership and power, I would hope that 
they are now. I assume many of these places already are, but at Batali Bastianich, Nancy Silverton and Lydia Bastianich have been elevated to greater leadership roles. They did confirm that to me, but you know, I would like to see them get more ownership um, or at the best group who I keep forgetting to mention as I am talking, some women have also been elevated to leadership roles and you know, what if they got more ownership? You know, not all of these things have to be the one dramatic solution of John Besh or Mario Batali divesting, though that could obviously open up shares for people who might deserve them more or could help really change the culture of the company. So on one hand, I, I sort of hope that, you know, knowing that these questions are being raised in public might help set the stage in these kind of companies for thinking more about who owns what and what that means. Uh, more broadly, readers who just care about food and dining um, or readers who are in the industry uh, but not directly affected by these issues, I would hope they maybe feel seen by a piece like this. You know, I think there's a lot of people I've seen commenting or tweeting or, you know, on podcasts asking about consequences and, you know, all, all that stuff that I read really informs my own thinking. And if I'm lucky enough to have a platform on Eater, I would like to be another person adding my voice to that chorus. And I hope, you know, this kind of writing, I guess, does help bring questions about economic justice more into how we talk about restaurants, right? Like, Restaurants are pleasure machines when they're working correctly, and I love that about them, but they're also economic machines, and the restaurants that I love best are often the places that, because of, in part, I'm a journalist and I get to know these things, I feel like are hopefully not the places where they're incredibly pleasurable and wonderful to dine at, but horrible to work at. Like, you want them to be both. And that's a big conversation happening in the food world in general right now. And I do think, you know, this conversation about harassment absolutely has to be part of it. Megan, it's been so great to have you here. Where can people find you on the internet? I am on Twitter at Meg McCarran. Um, and then I'm on Instagram uh, as Megan McCarran. And, um, Obviously, also, uh, my writing will be on either a few times a month. Um, so those are probably the best ways to find me. Uh, before we go, I want to take a quick second to pivot towards some of the other writing that you do that may or may not involve vampires. <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, my personal brand is a mess. Um uh, so I, I would say if someone really loves just straightforward stories about vampires, my writing might be disappointing. Um, but I, yeah, I write, um, you know, work that really is right in the middle of sort of the science fiction and fantasy world, but also the literary world. I'm really privileged to, um, be mentored by and like sort of friends with writers who um, have sort of really occupied that space in really amazing ways. So people like Kelly Link, Ed Chiang, um, Jeff Vandermeer, 
Carmen Maria Machado, um, whose book just won a national, oh no, it was just a finalist for the National Book Award. Um, so yeah, I, I love stories about vampires. I love quiet psychological dramas about, you know, marriages falling apart. And so I just sort of tend to mash all that together in my fiction. Uh, increasingly, I also write more and more about food, um, you know, as, as these things are sort of all marrying themselves together. I literally today finished the first draft of a novel um, set at a, a boarding school after sort of like a nebulous disaster where there's no more uh, power or um, cell signal. And it's it, a lot of it sort of hinges on, you know, how they stay fed and survive throughout a, a very cold winter. So um it all comes together in my head, but I am really terrible at explaining my writing career to other humans. <laughs> Megan, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for writing that article. It meant a lot to me, and hopefully it meant a lot to other people in the coffee industry. For Boss Barista, I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Please Email us, write to us, engage with us on social media. We always want to hear from you, and we are excited to continue making podcasts and talking about coffee. See you all soon.